It is Monday, October 23rd, and this is episode 74 of the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. It's insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Trevor Nargis, Supervisor, Trading Team. Welcome. Hey, Danny. And we got Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist of Annex Wealth Management. Welcome to you. It's great to be here. Let's jump into it as far as the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, but with first kind of uh, overview about what happened in the macro environment and then a look ahead. So on the macro calendar, I noticed a few things. We had retail sales, we had industrial production numbers, all better than expected probably caused investors to rethink whether or not the Fed is on hold. But then Chair Powell spoke, and I thought that he kind of put people a little bit at ease I have to stress a little bit that maybe they have a Powell pause in store for us here. What were you seeing? Yeah, so I I think that's a good point with the whole Powell thing is so, you know, you can read a lot of takeaways as far as, you know, people wrapping up what Powell might have said and was it dovish, was it hawkish, Mm -hmm. things like that. And to your point was the phrase that kept coming out was slightly dovish. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he touted like some of the strength in retail sales, talked about where policy's at right now, I think it's at a good spot. Talked about like longer moves in rates, we're actually more to term limits, all this sort of stuff. But I think the main takeaway for what we're trying to get at here is that slightly dovish undertones and hopping into that retail sales figure, you know, one thing that we'll talk about a little bit later here. But as far as what's coming up this week, Brian, what are you seeing and what's coming up? You know, there's a few data releases that I pay attention to that I'm not sure how many other people really do. My personal favorite is the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. It's from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, and it's a composite indicator. Uh, So it's made up of a lot of other ones where it's supposed to be a read as far as is the economy performing above trend or below trend. And it's been giving some readings that despite some of the big numbers that we've seen with retail sales and industrial production about kind of this middling along. So that's coming out on Monday. I'm curious what that's going to show. But I think that the big news is really going to be on Thursday with the third quarter GDP number. So GDP, gross domestic product, market value of all final goods and services that are produced. People are expecting almost like this blowout number, something anywhere from 4%, if you ask the consensus from Bloomberg, to 5%, if you ask the Atlanta Fed's reading of it. Uh, And And that is about double maybe the growth rate of what you would expect for the long term for the U.S. economy. So this huge surge. So that's uh, kind of the big ones that I'm going to be looking forward to. How do you reconcile that kind of GDP estimate versus what you're seeing from the Chicago Fed National Activity Index? It, it, it is a big disconnect. And it's also made worse when we look at things like the Beige Book. So the Federal Reserve released their Beige Book last week, and it said that effectively economic activity had stalled, right? I mean, they're still producing goods and services, but there was no growth. And that was the same tone from the previous Beige Book and the one before that. And when we look at, say, home builder sentiment, that was down to 40. So anything that low is kind of in a recessionary territory. When you look at the ISM manufacturing numbers, ISM services numbers, it's really hard to square some of those other readings with the big numbers we get from retail sales, industrial production, and then what we're seeing with the GDP numbers. So we'll have to see. I think a big wild card is inventories. Inventories are always very volatile. And a key question to me is, are businesses adding to inventories or subtracting from it? Because if they're continuing to add 
to inventories. And if consumer strength is high, it means they're optimistic about the outlook. But if we're seeing inventories rising and consumer spending is falling, that means that they've overinvested and some weaknesses ahead. So I think that's going to be a key thing to kind of look and maybe that's the wild card here. Yeah. And speaking of companies too, building up inventories, I'll kind of translate that into the next thing that we're watching for throughout this week is some earnings that are starting mm-hmm. to come in. We're starting to get to earnings season here. So throughout the week, you got you know GM, Kimberly-Clark, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, UPS, Harley, Amazon. You got a, a slew of things coming in. Started to get some bank earnings, which some people argue came in a little weaker than anticipated, maybe attributable to some of the weakness that you saw last week. Um, but let's move into kind of our strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities, and, and our threats here. Uh, let's start off with strengths. And one, from a market side of things, would be the energy sector. I know we've talked about that a couple of times here, but when I say that, I talk more over the past three months. I mean, even the past month, it's been one of the more resilient pockets of the market. You know, people have started to take a little bit off the table as far as where they're allocated and things like that. But energy continues to be quite strong on a relative basis. I was talking with our chief investment officer, Derek Felsky, and, you know, people always talk about this captive buyer when it comes to like the Fed and treasuries and all that in the bond market. But you can almost kind of translate that in a way to the oil market, right? The U.S. has really depleted their SPR. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's somewhat of a captive buyer there. They talked about, you know, where they kind of have bids out or where they're looking just underneath 80, like 79. Yep. But I think with the global tension that's out there too, you know, you have what's going on in Israel. uh, You still have the Ukraine war going on. Just increased kind of tension across the board that that can kind of put some pressure on oil prices too, um, especially if supply chains start to get disrupted. Energy in and of itself has been a strength year to date, not so much, right? People talk about the Magnificent Seven and tech, you know, consumer discretionary comms, all that fun stuff. But as of late, you've seen a little more of that rotation. So we'll continue to see how that plays out, but energy has been a strength. Yeah, I would say that with the energy story as well, that it started building some momentum before the conflict in the Middle East before Hamas attacked Israel. And obviously there's a political risk premium built into the price of oil right now, but in a way it's the fundamentals, I think that kind of led us to that overweight to the energy sector, the persistent underinvestment in not just exploration, but then also the refining capacity, the cash generation capabilities of those companies. So even though the uh, conflict in the Middle East has kind of maybe lit a little fire underneath the energy trade, it might have a little bit more staying power. Just I look at the industrial production numbers, capacity utilization, and how uh, the energy uh, companies themselves are basically running at full out capacity. And that has never really happened before. And they're not investing in more capacity. And you're actually seeing some of the consolidation taking place. So that's kind of fascinating. But then on the consumer side, obviously, higher energy prices beginning to eat into some consumer spending. We're seeing that a little bit with retail sales, where spending at gasoline stations really ramped up because, of course, if the price of gasoline goes up, you spend more there, right? Uh, And where is that really going to come from as far as the consumer budget? So far, it's not coming from where I would have expected. 
I would have expected it to come from the leisure and hospitality, especially food services and drinking places. But that was showing some surprising strength. We did see a decline in spending at furniture stores, sporting goods stores, things like that, things that you don't purchase quite as frequently. But we'll see if uh, maybe some of the high energy prices and tighter financial conditions begin to bite going forward. Well, that somewhat takes us into our next point, too, of, you know, consumer spending and whatnot, is that retail sales were pretty strong as of late. You know, you can slice and dice it however you want, but for the most part, uh, things have been pretty solid. You coined the phrase, you know, in our team meeting just last week, and it was perfect, right? The consumer's like the Energizer bunny. It just keeps (laughs) going. So continues to kind of just plug away. What'll be interesting, too, to your prior point, Brian, is what retail sales shape up, continue to look like in the holiday season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that is the big wild card. We're already beginning to see some of those surveys, big investment banks do it. it looks like people are going to cut back a little bit, but you know there can always be a difference between what people say and then what they do. It's one of the reasons why whenever you see those consumer confidence or consumer sentiment indexes, take those with a grain of salt. That's what people say, but it's not necessarily what they do. And ultimately that's what matters. As far as weaknesses, yeah, I think one of the big weaknesses that has been really on display is just bonds. Bonds should not be this exciting to watch as far as the volatility. I was looking at the options prices for a couple ETFs. So one that tracks the S&P 500 and one that tracks the general treasury market and the implied volatility. So kind of a market expectation of the ups and downs to expect over the next month. And bonds are expected to be more volatile than stocks. And that was somewhat shocking to see. That is unusual. Yeah. And what's interesting too, I mean, people talk about what the move index has looked like there too. Maybe you attribute some of what you were talking about to to that. But as far as bond implied volatility, things like that. You can also flip that on its head and look at kind of expected returns, right? Mm -hmm. So what people have typically done over, you know, more recent market cycles, and they're like, okay, long-term S&P about 10% a year. High yield bonds right now are at about nine. Mm -hmm. So super interesting that you're almost getting equity-like returns in the high yield space. And those credit pockets of the market have been, you know, reverting to our prior point, they've been strong, right? Yeah, so, the, the key is going to be avoiding defaults in, right. in that type of environment. That kind of goes into an opportunity, and we'll get into that a little later about the opportunities for, you know, quality uh, underwriters and credit analysts, things like that. But as far as weaknesses in the bond market, it's really just been a weak appetite mm-hmm. for kind of what's often been viewed as the safe haven asset, right? People typically view treasuries as the safe investment, and there tends to be a flight there. Yeah, and that's what we saw the like Monday after Hamas attacked Israel was the flight to safety, bond deals went down, but it was so short-lived. Now the real safe haven assets were gold going up, oil going up, defense company stocks going up. But treasury, those yields have increased. And I think a big part of it, it's really supply and demand. So as an economist, I can always say it's supply and demand, right? So a parrot could be a good economist, just teach it to say supply and demand. And that's the answer to every question. But in terms of demand for those Treasury bonds, the Federal Reserve is doing quantitative tightening. So they've stepped out as being a price insensitive buyer. We've also seen a decline in foreign demand. Now, on net for the year, it's positive. But China, they have their own issues and they have actually been selling, especially like equity securities, maybe not so much treasuries. Japan has reduced their holdings as well. So some of the challenges globally, and maybe it's not because they are, you know, don't like the yields. 
but there are better opportunities. One thing that I've noticed is agency mortgage-backed securities uh, have a higher yield than treasuries. And so some of this could be a portfolio rebalancing of foreign investors. And so households have had to kind of fill that gap on the demand side. On the supply side, that's what are deficits like? What's that issuance calendar? And that's the part that keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I think that bigger supply, less demand, you're going to get lower prices. You're going to get the higher yields. Yeah, and I think we can kind of spin this too because in our opportunity, not to give it away here, but bonds are one of the main opportunities that we're highlighting here. And so, you know, you look at even this year and last year, um, you know, many investors have had a hard time making sense of what's been taking place in the bond market this year. I mean, a lot of people, they thought, you know, we had one of the worst years ever for bonds in 2022. So 2023 is about to be gangbusters and <laughs> just hasn't been the case, right? Rates have continued to move. Bonds have subsequently sold off. With that being said, though, I think that that risk reward opportunity is quite attractive going forward. You know, I talked to just a little while ago about the opportunity for almost not stock picking, but bond picking, right? Mm -hmm. People who can really look into these companies, underwrite, look at the credit, you know, analyze the actual instrument. There's some really interesting opportunities out there because yields have moved. You know, we started this hiking cycle at practically zero and now we're north of five. And so the coupons have just moved quite a bit and that makes it a lot easier for people to kind of reconcile having fixed income in their yep. portfolio because the whole thing you heard over the past cycle was 60 40 is dead right bonds are dead i'm just going to go all in stocks and really not the case anymore you kind of have that opportunity for fixed income to act as more of a ballast within the portfolio. Yeah, with the higher coupons. And then I also think that client conversations where they are holding the individual bonds, as opposed to holding bonds through a fund where it's marked to market every day. Now, of course, you can mark the bonds to market every day, but they're not forced to sell them. So if you are a long-term investor and you're able to hold the individual bonds, it makes it a lot easier because you can always have the option to just hold it to maturity. So that's what we really work with clients on is as far as how to structure that portfolio, make that ride feel a little bit safer, especially as you see all the uh, red on the screen when you turn on CNBC. And not to focus solely on bonds, we do want to talk a little bit about stocks here, but really the opportunity, maybe a little more in the short term here around the market's kind of testing some near-term support levels. You'd like to see a little more consolidation there before really wanting to kind of go full blown, but potentially an opportunity for stocks to rebound off there. But kind of counterpoint to that is what we get into with threats here. So we'll pivot here. We'll go with higher rates as far as that being a threat, right? Higher rates continue to put pressure on asset prices. Um, on the flip side of that, you want to look at the risk reward, right? With where bonds are at right now, I think the upside is a lot more attractive compared to the potential downside. But again, higher rates continue to put pressure on asset prices. And why is that? Because ultimately it comes down to kind of the fundamentals and the valuations and things like that. Higher rates tend to imply higher likelihood for more constrained activity. Mm -hmm. It puts pressure on the consumer. It increases the financing and cost of capital for various companies. So naturally a headwind in that respect. Yeah, I think that there's going to be the separating of the wheat from the chaff as far as the idea that what are the companies that have maybe a really good ability to cover the debt, have termed it out, meaning that they don't need to refinance anytime soon versus those companies that are already kind of struggling. Maybe their debt is coming due maybe they're in floating rate. And I think that's where you could get that separation between the winners and the losers. It's been so fascinating to look at how the Magnificent Seven has done year to date versus everybody else, basically. Could that 
kind of similar thing happen, but not based on AI, but more based on credit worthiness, right? As far as those that are more credit worthy are the ones that maybe are going to be able to weather any sort of storm that we have ahead of us and the equity markets. And so continued where separating the winners from the losers. And it's not just this rising tide lifting all boats. I don't think it's an environment where necessarily over the next few months that it's also going to be a falling tide where all of the boats uh, begin to fall. I think that there is going to continue to be that separation based on that dimension of profitability and quality. So, Brian, I think you make a fantastic point with kind of that bifurcation, so to speak, and the creditworthiness because people keep touting higher rates as being a bad thing. I mean, I even just mentioned that, right? In, mm-hmm. in general, yeah, it tends to be a bad thing. But what's really interesting is that you do have some of those larger mega cap, really sound companies that are credit worthy that have net cash balance sheets. Mm-hmm. So what do higher rates mean for them? It means they're able to earn more on that cash. So not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of those companies are already top operators in that space. Mm-hmm. So what a higher rate environment can do and maybe a broader market sell-off, well, it can allow them to capture a little more market share, so to speak, right? Because some of their competitors, maybe they're a little more strained. They got to tap the debt markets, maybe lay workers off. Yeah. They aren't able to expand as much versus companies that are able to earn, you know, north of 5% on their cash. Well, maybe they can expand operations, right? Launch new products, capture market share from others. So there is that bifurcation, right? It's not always just, you know, this is the one answer and that mm-hmm. applies to everyone. You got to be sure to look underneath the hood and pick yeah. your spots. Over the last few years, there have been a number of companies, typically the larger ones, who took advantage of the low rates to issue debt, raise cash, and it almost has created a war chest or a rainy day fund. And so if we do encounter a little bit of rain, they're the ones who are probably going to step in and buy up some assets on the cheap. So, you know, maybe the, that threat that we could have kind of a, a rally before we do see some economic weakness, it's not necessarily going to be the case that everybody wins and everybody loses. On that rally point too, right? Maybe we could see more of a rally in the year and people love to talk about the seasonality, mm-hmm. the technicals, you know, pre-election year, what tends to happen in like Q4 with the end of year rally there. But what we've been watching and what we've kind of mentioned routinely as a team is watching for somewhat of that whipsaw where maybe, you know, earnings start to come back, things look solid, but then you start to see maybe due to kind of consumer activity, increased costs, you know, supply chains drying up, things like that, that maybe then that's when you start to see kind of that rollover. We always wrap with our headlines. What is the headline strength this week? The consumer. The consumer is like the Energizer Bunny and just won't stop. Headline weakness. Bonds shouldn't be this nerve-wracking. Headline opportunity. (laughs) Bonds if you can hold them. And our headline threat. Rally before reality because reality eventually bites. Episode 74 of the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. Trevor Nargis, Supervisor Trading Team. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. And Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.